Tēnā koutou e te whānau. Uh, I'm Fran Francis. I was invited to come and speak to Maharangi Vineyard and uh, the recording didn't work. So here's a sound file just to pick up on uh, the topic that we were talking about and that you can enjoy listening to on your fabulous Maharangi podcast. So a little bit about me. I'm married to Vic Francis. We've got 30 years on the clock as vineyard pastors on the north shore of Auckland and um, Lyndon and Angela have been good friends of ours and, and we've seen Maharangi Vineyard since its earliest, earliest days because of course it was the very first vineyard church and uh, our church was uh, born, if you like, not too long after you guys. So we share some similar history. But you've been exploring prayer recently and I just think that is so marvellous and I hope that you've found some new joys in praying. What is prayer for you? Is one of the foundational questions I ask as a spiritual director. We often have deeply held beliefs about what we think prayer is. And I often see that people feel guilty about not praying enough. Or imagine my fingers doing inverted commas here. Not praying properly. So we paint ourselves into a corner thanks to a combination of what we received in our early faith development or discipleship about what prayer is or isn't and what we perceive ourselves to be doing or not doing according to that kind of coda. So teasing out a bit what prayer is will be part of uh, this morning's um, work together. So what is prayer? And initial answers may be, talking to God. Um, or to broaden the spectrum a bit, we might have experienced a, an acronym to pray with, ACT, for example, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. Those four things are good, solid ways of praying. Um, but if you notice, today's topic is lament as prayer. Um, there's not lament on that little um, four-part uh, acronym. So there's probably a few things missing from there. St. Augustine, one of the great thinkers of the Western Church, um, who was thinking and writing in the uh, early part of the, f- f- um, yeah, well, when was he? Hmm. Let's say fourth century. Give that a shot. Um, he says our prayers have a voice of their own, quite apart from our own voice. Isn't that amazing? So God hears all the voices that speak out of us. Our vocal prayer, the prayer said in our minds, the unvoiced longing rising from our hearts, the many voices of which we're not even conscious, but which cry out eloquently to God. And if you think I'm on a bit of a... um, slippery slope here. This is St. Paul to the Romans saying, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we ought. But that very Spirit intercedes with sighs too deep for words. And God, who searches the heart, knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So that's pretty cool. The Spirit expresses the things that we can't express. God already knows what it is we're trying to say when sometimes we can't say it at all or haven't even located it within ourselves yet. 
Sometimes the voice which is eloquently crying out is lamenting. Like Rachel and Rama, refusing to be comforted. Why? Because she's lost her children. She's lost her identity as a mother. She's lost her security because her home was invaded. She will be confronted by this loss every day for the rest of her life while the older boys in the community grow up and hers never will. We can see too in this that there are different kinds of losses. Um, Rachel experienced a tangible loss. I had this little boy or these little boys and now I don't. So it's a physical, tangible loss. But then there's an intangible loss, the loss of her identity as a mother, the loss of her sense of security in her own home. Uh, there's a, a, there are non-finite losses, ongoing confrontation. This can happen uh, with a diagnosis of an illness, um, particularly a chronic illness, and uh, perhaps disability, well, definitely disability as well, that it's something that confronts us again and again. Um, loss of uh, our land, our connection to our whenua, uh, that is a, an ongoing loss for people, loss of language that goes with colonialization, all that stuff. Um, they're just confronting people again and again. But there are also, interestingly, positive losses. These are things like a child uh, leaving preschool and starting primary school, or leaving home, or beginning um, their life uh, with a life partner. There are positive losses in our own lives, such as perhaps moving into a new job, or, or moving to a different city or country. So there are sadnesses in the farewells and goodbyes, but they are what we might call moving forward. If they didn't happen, there would be a particular kind of sadness attached to that. It's good for us to remember too that Jesus himself experienced losses and grief and difficulty. Um, he sat outside the cultural norms of his society by being an unmarried man. He had no wife or children. He didn't have a home of his own. Um, he, as he moved through uh, the various regions, experienced a lot of verbal abuse, threats to his life. And of course, uh, the ultimate was uh, his um, arrest and beating and, and crucifixion. And I do wonder sometimes if we are a bit over familiar with the crucifixion and that we don't see some of the aspects of it such as the um, that it was a form of sexual torture it was deliberately humiliating it's um, this is our God who has experienced this and understands what it's like to be on the receiving end of the unspeakable God has experienced that so in a bit of a change of direction, I am a seven on the Enneagram and that means by nature I'm a pain avoider. It was a huge thing for me to learn that when I ran from my pain, I also ran from Jesus. I'm sure you got here long before me, but I discovered that Jesus waits for me in the pain. Who knew? If I can go towards it, 
I'm most likely to find him waiting there for me. In the messiest and most horrible of places, he, the lover of my soul, knows how to be with and what to do with pain because he experiences it with me. So, triumphalist Christianity, that insidious form of so-called faith, which names and claims, which centres on prosperity and accuses the sick or poor of sin or faithlessness, robs us of the full human experience, albeit an awful part of it, which is to feel our pain. In our part of the Christian family here in the vineyard, we have our own issues. Our Easter services, blithely in general, skip past the horror of Good Friday. We ignore the gaping questions and bewilderment of Holy Saturday and we gather all smiles on Resurrection Sunday full of joy and celebration and chocolate. When given the opportunity to sit with something difficult, we're inclined to say, "Uh, no thanks. So while the vineyard has a robust theology of suffering and allowing for it, our repertoire in worship does not, as far as I can really discern, have much in the way of lament. And I've been singing vineyard songs for a very long time. We don't have much depth there, people. Another important time in the church year, Advent. It's given barely a nod as we're shopping and hurrying our way towards the feast of the Nativity. And I do love that, love a good feast. And we're all looking forward to having a nice time. But embedded in that story is the massacre of small children, a screaming inconsolable woman, institutional violence initiated by a man who killed three of his own adult sons and at least one of his wives, not to mention these small boys and many other people. The library of our faith, these varied genres of books in the Bible, do not gloss over these kinds of events, but bring them to our attention and demand that we and God wrestle it out and the people in these accounts show us how. In fact, there's even a book called The Lamentation of Jeremiah, so a whole book of lament. The prayer book of Jesus, the Psalms, has 150 prayers, of which 66 of those are lament. So, let's talk about lament. Lament is not a feeling. It's a way of expressing in prayer, poetry or song, a feeling or some feelings. So what does lament express? Grief, anguish, regret and remorse, powerlessness, despair, futility, even the inexpressible, like when words can't somehow express what we're trying to say, and then we're reduced to groaning, keening, wailing, rocking our bodies, tearing of the hair, flinging our bodies to the ground. Lament is the prayer of extremity. It's not polite. It's not pretty. It allows for cursing and bad words, for stink attitudes, and telling God what we really need, how it really is, what really happened, and trusting that God hears us. There's a hopeful, helpful pattern to these prayers in the Psalms, which we can adopt for ourselves. And you should have the um, slide deck there on the website so you can have a, a look at the pattern. But here's how it goes. There's an address 
or invocation to God, like, hear us, O God, or how long, O God. And then there's the expression of what it is we're upset about, the lament or the complaint itself. Um, here's an example. So just listen to this. This is a little bit from Psalm 64. Hear my voice, O God, in my complaint. Preserve my life from dread of the enemy. Hide me from the secret plots of the wicked, from the throng of evildoers who sharpen their tongues like swords, who aim bitter words like arrows, shooting from ambush at the blameless. That's me. Shooting at him, me, suddenly and without fear. They hold fast to their evil purpose. They talk of laying snares secretly, thinking, well, who will be able to see them? Yeah, it's pretty intense. So we get to say these kinds of things, eh? So there's the the complaint. You can hear it there in, in that psalm. These people are accusing me and lying about me and my reputation is in tatters and also they're setting stuff up so that I'm going to fall into these traps. And then it's like, there's an expression of trust that follows and a request for God to do something in particular. It might be to strengthen the person. Just there's an action that's asked for and an affirmation of um, trust that the prayer is heard. Not that the thing that has been asked for will happen, but the trust that God hears. And being heard is a key part of our healing, isn't it? when we know we've been heard, makes a huge difference. And then there's a vow to praise God when the situation is resolved. It might also include a curse on the enemy. That could be fun. And a declaration of the people's or individual's guilt or blamelessness in this situation that is being expressed to God. It's just so honest and I'm secretly quite pleased that there's even one which doesn't end on the uptick of a promise to praise to God at the end. It simply concludes, only darkness is my friend. We're allowed to be in the dark space. God allows it. We're allowed to say this to God and this is God, we must remember, who's the one who collects the tears we shed, who notices them, that they're precious to him, who is near to the brokenhearted and prefers to be with than to do for. You know, it's a relationship, not a transaction. Some laments are national or communal, expressing the anguish of an entire people, and others are personal. The people cry out to God from their captivity in Babylon. There's a communal one a national one, and David cries out to God because Saul is trying to kill him, and he's terrified and needs help. So there's an individual one. So you can put your own words in, you can find Psalm 64 or, or, or any of the other 66, find the one that sort of fits your situation and what it is you want to say, and then change the language so that it reflects where you are and how you would say something, you know, I need you to be my refuge. Or you could say refuge, and that might be just the right word for you. But it might also be if you're um, 
feeling somewhat attacked, maybe the sense that, um, God, would, if you're a hunter, would you be my my my? Or would you be, I need you to be my batch. Or I need you to be my bunker. So use the language that's right for you and then read it back to God, trusting that God hears it. If ever there was a time for this form of prayer, it is now when we are globally grieving so many lost loved ones. We are so um, cushioned, I think, here in New Zealand. But nevertheless, I don't want to minimize in any way the things that have happened in our own lives, the things we've missed, the things that we have lost. So there's our own stuff, the individual, and then there's the global stuff and the um, the environment and what it is that has led to the emergence of a disease like COVID-19, this virus. So there are uh, the prayers of the people and the prayers of the individual. Now's the time. Eh? Individual lament is also a very significant way to pray with the terrible and inexplicable, meaningless pain or loss which we have suffered. There is a pattern for it that God's given us that we can use to heal our own uh, hearts. God will meet us in it. Jesus' embrace of the cross is to ultimately allow for the wiping away of every tear from all faces and for death to lose its sting. But in his physical suffering and his own experience of grief, abuse and loss, Jesus, who is God, offers us his understanding and comfort. And this is where Thomas the disciple has something for us. Thomas is the only man who's willing or even wants to touch the wounds of Jesus. And he also had this knack for asking the awkward question. But when he would do that, Jesus' response to Thomas kind of made everybody give a collective sigh of relief because nobody understood, and it was only Thomas who was willing to say it out loud. So here's a, a sonnet that uh, talks about this wonderful man, Thomas, his questions and what he's reaching for. One of my favourite poets here, Malcolm Guide. We do not know. How can we know the way? Courageous master of the awkward question, you spoke the words the others dared not say and cut through their evasion and abstraction. Oh, doubting Thomas, father of my faith, you put your finger on the nub of things. We cannot love some disembodied wraith, but flesh and blood must be our king of kings. Your teaching is to touch, embrace, Anoint, feel after him and find him in the flesh. Because he loved your awkward counterpoint, the word has heard and granted you your wish. I'll place my hands with yours. Help me divine the wounded God whose wounds are healing mine. That feels like a good segue into a story. Got a fair dab of the Irish in me. And there are many wonderful folk tales and legends in the Celtic tradition. 
The same is true here of the stories of the gods and mortals of Māori mythology. And we may not believe in those gods, but the wisdom of those tales can be true even today, even for Christians, because all truth comes from our good God. And there's nothing so terrific as a good story, so I'm going to tell you this one. The god Maclear suffered a tragic loss. His grief and anguish were so deep and so great was his weeping for an entire year that he wept an ocean into being. His mother, the owl goddess Maka, was so disturbed to see her son's distress that she determined to ease his pain and suffering. She did this by turning him to stone. He became a mountain, an island of stone sitting in an ocean of his own tears. Then everywhere she looked, Marcus saw suffering, and in her kindness, she did the same for them. She even captured her own feelings and trapped them in jars bound with strong enchantments so they couldn't be broken or released by anyone. Feelings were dangerous unpredictable, disturbing and destructive. They must not be allowed out. Marka's mission created great fear in the land as more and more of the fairy folk were turned to stone, becoming lifeless lumps of rock in the landscape, no longer doing anything, either good or bad. They lay there forgotten. Until one day, a voice was heard. A song was sung bravely and with great risk. And the tone of this song and its words shattered the jars containing all of Marka's feelings. They were unleashed. Marka felt them all. The joy and sorrow, anger and peace, exhaustion and rest, boredom and passion, ambivalence and devotion. All her many feelings surged through her with great force. It was a mighty sight to see her alternately lifted high and cast down. But when it was over and her feelings had settled, she was able to discern that she had done a terrible thing in numbing the pain of others and not letting them feel. She flew straight to the great rock in the sea that had been her son, Maclear and released him. And then every unfeeling stone that had been alive was restored to its living form. And great was the celebration, the tears of joy and reunion in the land. This story is retold in a gorgeous hand-drawn animated film called Song of the Sea, if you're interested. Be warned, it will make you cry like a baby. So feelings are not bad. They're data. They bring us information which is located in our bodies. Our job is not to reject, project or suppress them, but to discern them. Where does this feeling come from? Is it God's good spirit? My spirit? Or some other spirit? How am I invited to respond to it? This is the work of mature Christianity, 
the writer to the Hebrews tells us. We do violence to ourselves by not attending to our feelings, and we do violence to others if, like Macha, we cannot bear to witness the pain of others because we don't know what to do with it. I did this with my own son when he was seven and diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. So this is an ongoing loss that he faces. But we used to pray with our children, the four of them each night in their beds one by one. And I had begun to feel that I couldn't pray for my son um, for healing anymore. Um, It wasn't happening. And so gradually I just sort of went in and give him a good night kiss and kind of read the story and the cuddle and that sort of stuff. And then one night he just said, will you pray for me? And I thought, oh my goodness, I've been trying to protect God here, but I, I, I need to pray differently. And that I've been cutting off my child's air supply. You know, I'm the one who can pray for him. Of course he could pray for himself, but he's seven. And so just because I didn't know what to do with it didn't mean that I should just stop, you know. So it's not our job to take away or shut down a person's feelings out of a misguided idea that we're protecting them. I thought I was protecting him, but I also thought I was kind of protecting God's reputation. You know, denying our feelings and denying others the freedom to feel what they feel creates a lifeless landscape of stones with the occasional huge rock sitting alone in an ocean of tears. And I've met a, a man who was a huge rock sitting alone in the ocean of his tears. And it was uh, at a retreat for the Manila vineyard in the Philippines. And I'd told this story and he came to me afterwards with, along with his wife, the professor of physics and they're a marvelous couple and he told me that his mother had died when he was little and his dad had done a good job of of raising he and his brothers but that there was this kind of anomaly for him where his father would send them out every day looking immaculate with a freshly pressed ironed handkerchief clean given to them but with the instruction that they weren't to use it. They weren't allowed to cry. And so here was the man whose feelings had been shut down. And that the story of MacLear and the the beginning of the release to become a, a feeling human being again, not a mountain of stone. It was a wonderful thing. So... You know, the work of Jesus is to take away not our pain, but our hearts of stone. He gives us the heart of flesh, the heart that can feel, the responsive heart, the heart that can be broken, hearts that feel and remember, hearts that act, hearts that can be written on by the loving finger of God. So we'll give the last word to St. John of the Cross from the 16th century. He said, And I saw the river over which every soul must pass to reach the kingdom of heaven. And the name of that river was suffering.
and I saw a boat which carries souls across that river and the name of that boat was love. So if there's anything that I came to this message about lament, which I've subtitled kind of touching the wounds, uh, there's a couple of things. One is that perhaps there's an invitation to do as Thomas did, to reach out to touch the wounds of Christ, that in order for your own healing to come, Jesus' own pains need to become real for you, that he's not separate or distant, that he's not outside of pain, that he is not unaware of what these things are like, but by putting your hand into one of his wounds, that something of some healing will come to you. And maybe to take a little bit of time to sit with that and to see which wound you're invited to reach out to of Jesus's. Which one does he want you to put your hand on? What even might be comforting and consoling for him as you do that and see what comes back to you. And the other thing that I was conscious of was that there is a waiting boat of love for you in your suffering. And you might need to get in it every day. You might need to get in it several times a day. But it's always there to carry you across the piece of suffering that you are in at the moment. And little by little, that boat will carry you across the river. So you might even want to sit and let that image of the boat arise and to see if the boat is indeed Jesus himself. The scripture tells us he's our ark. But maybe Jesus is waiting for you in the boat. You'll know. Just let it play out as you sit with this and then take it into a conversation between you and your God. So I want to thank you for your hospitality. I want to bless you. And may your ongoing discovery of what it means to commune with God grow ever deeper and possibly with fewer and fewer words because that seems to be how it goes. We get to just sit and be with God in love. Blessings to you.